Hey, everybody. Welcome to AQ's Blog and Grill. We're really excited today to have uh, Curtis McBride as our guest. Curtis is the co-founder and CEO of Myovision, which is a really interesting, uh, I'm not even going to say startup. It's in its 10th or 12th year now, and it's really making great progress. Um, in terms of a global market. We're going to talk to, uh, to Curtis a little bit about that in a moment. Um, Myovision just announced uh, in the past uh, little while that they have received Series C funding, Series 3 funding. Uh, and it's an, it's an amazing amount of uh, confidence that investors are showing in Myovision. Uh, the amount comes into about 120 million Canadian and uh, that's uh, made up with new investors and some legacy investors. So this is really an interesting story. So welcome, Curtis. Thank you. <laughs> so um, Curtis, give us a little bit of an outline, if you will, on, on what Myovision is today, what it is that you guys are doing, uh, and then we'll, in a moment or two, we'll talk about the future. But what, what are you guys up to these days? Yeah, for sure. So. Um... I always, I always make reference to the Italian job. If you remember that scene where they're zipping yes. through uh, and, you know, making the lights turn, turn red and green. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, you know, based on that, people always assume that intersections are already connected and, and have sensors and are, and are smart. Uh, and while that's true in, in a small number of cases, most intersections are, are unconnected, at least unconnected in any sort of modern way that we would think about uh, connectivity. They have limited sensing capabilities. So, and, and as a consequence, traffic is kind of, if you've ever driven around anywhere, traffic tends to suck. Yeah. Um, so our, our whole approach is trying to bring um, technologies and business models that have been proven out, you know, in lots of different markets uh, all over the place and try to bring them to uh, a market that hasn't really gone through the internet revolution yet. It's still stuck in, you know, 1985, uh, lots of serial and analog devices that are used and we try to come along uh, and bring, you know, uh, sensing capability, communications, um, intelligence that runs in the cloud, and really to try to help make cities more livable, improve congestion, uh, improve safety, uh, just to sort of generally make driving around a lot more fun. Yeah, and, and I guess this is also uh, going to affect the carbon footprint of cities to a degree. Yeah, totally. Um, one of the stats that we've been we've been we've developed and we've been talking a lot about uh, to our, our federal and provincial partners is that Canada made a bunch of commitments um, at the, the Paris Accord uh, to reduce our greenhouse gas footprint, and currently we're we're on track to to miss those those targets. Um, if you were to based on um, the data sets we have, where we've actually gone in and optimized uh, intersections that were were underperforming uh, and you know causing delays and, and ultimately causing greenhouse gas emissions. If you were to optimize every intersection in, in, in Canada, of which there's about 40,000 of them, uh, it would close that gap by about a, a third. So, wow. you know, a relatively inexpensive investment uh, yeah. to, to make a huge dent in that in that number. So obviously that, that that's true on smaller scales when, when cities implement. Um, but as a national uh, stat, it's pretty compelling as well. Great. And I mean, that is significant. Now, our cities in north america getting it or are the europeans a little ahead of us on how this can improve um, the release of of carbon gases yeah you know um it, it it a lot of it comes down to you can use our system for a number of different things i mean car, greenhouse gas reduction is certainly one of the things 
Um, some cities are more focused on like pedestrian and cyclist safety. Some are more focused on commuter times and just reducing, you know, travel times. So what we, what we generally try to do is we go in and depending on the, um, depending on the, the political force of the, of the day, um, we try to, you know, really emphasize the parts of our, our system that help with that particular aspect. So, you know, in, uh, in Jersey city, for example, when we did a deployment there, the mayor had come in uh, with a what's called Vision Zero, which is a, a platform really focused on trying to reduce road fatalities to zero over time. So, so the investment that that city made was really about safety and trying to understand safety. Um, you know, in Toronto, when we did the deployment there, it was it was really it was the, the planning folks that were really trying to understand the impact of some policy changes they've made along King Street uh, to improve transit tra- transit utilization along King Street, King Street corridor. Um, you know, and then in other cases, it's uh, like I said, greenhouse gas or or congestion based approach. So, um, so yeah, a lot of our a lot of our approach is trying to understand what's really the priority for the citizens locally, and then try to align our our uh, our tools for them around those priorities. Yeah. Now, so Jersey City is just outside of Manhattan, and yep. um, what do you think? Um, is Manhattan ever going to be able to do this? Yeah, I mean, we have a great relationship with uh, with the city of New York. We um, we we do uh, through our, our other product called Scout, which is more of a portable portable deployed product. Uh, we do most of the traffic counts in in Manhattan and in New York uh, at large. Um, I mean, they have they have uh, really complex um, challenges there. The, the they've done a lot to try, to try to invest in optimization of traffic in Manhattan in particular. The 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 biggest problem they have right now is um, around double parked cars. So you'll have a UPS truck that'll come in and double park and it might only be for 60 seconds while they run in and drop the package, but it just sends like a shockwave of congestion through Manhattan. Um, so some of the things we've been talking about with them are more like real time alerting so that they can drive enforcement around, um, double parked cars or what they call block the box, uh, where you have people that basically park in the middle of the intersection, light changes, no one can move. Um, so theirs is more around, uh, you know, sort of operationally, uh, trying to eliminate the things that cause those those shockwaves of congestion because the, the network will take, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes to heal from one of those shockwaves. Right. But if any organization in the world can solve that problem, it is mild vision. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and again, like, w- w- you know, we're we're taking business models and technologies that have been proven in lots of other markets, right? So we're not we're not fundamentally inventing in a new mousetrap. We're just taking mousetraps that have been proven and, and applying them. So right. um, I would say any organization that takes 21st century approaches and 21st, uses 21st century technologies, applies in this problem, can solve it. We just happen to be the only ones doing that right now. Right. It's a great position to be in. So when I've read descriptions about uh, MileVision uh, back when you and I first chatted about five years ago, um, <laughs> It was all about being smart. It was it was having smart technology for smart cities. Are cities getting smarter? Yeah, I mean, I I never liked the smart city um, definition because it kind of it implies something about what we were before. Okay, before we were smart. Um, right. I, I think you know what what um, the the opportunity with you know with with the smart city is that whatever you measure will improve. And we've never really been able to measure cities in in the ways that you know ubiquitous wireless networks and you know Moore's law driving down the cost of sensors and processing you know right. ubiquity of cloud like all of those things have sort of converged where 
Um, it used to be that we could instrument the internet and we could get really smart about the data that was available in, in the internet. But now the technology is getting to the point where you can actually, actually instrument the physical world. And, and I think we're, we're really just at the beginning of, of, um, of what the smart city uh, can, can ultimately become. Right. Um, and, and I think there's this you know, once, in a, once in a generation opportunity to, uh, to start to measure the things that we care about. Um, so it's things like safety, things like greenhouse gas emissions, you know, all the things that go into livability. Uh, and then beyond mobility, there's all sorts of other things like energy consumption and the movement of goods and people um, that, uh, that I think if we, if we can start to measure them um, and then start to build insight tools on them that help us to understand how to, how to improve them, there's an opportunity to optimize lots of different aspects of cities by 20 or 30%. Um, wow. And I think that's the, when people talk about smart city, it's, I, I think it's a bit of a, it's almost like a yearning for what, the, what that looks, what, what, what that would look like. Um, that they're hanging on to yeah it's an aspiration i guess i think so yeah yeah um so how many cities how many communities are currently customers of myovision so we have we have two different product families we have the scout and the traffic link uh scout's been around for 10 plus years uh we probably have over 1500 customers using that in 60 countries or more than 60 wow. countries around the world um and then we have traffic link which is a newer newer product and it has uh approaching 200 customers uh largely north america we have um, one deployment in in new zealand but largely canada and the us for now with uh, the traffic link product right. um and and we have uh you know low thousands like two, two or three thousand intersections that are that are running on, on the on the traffic point platform right now wow that's uh that's great so how many people are are employed how many people uh fit on the myovision team today so we have uh we have our, our headquarters obviously in, in kitchener waterloo and then we have a, a sales and support office um in germany in cologne uh, so between those two offices, we have about 175 people uh, full-time full-time staff today, uh, and then over the next 12 months, with the capital raise that you talked about, we're gonna we're gonna try to add about 100 new people to the team. Wow, that's uh, that's a lot of investment, and obviously, you and your investors feel that that this technology and the business model is going to be um, expanding in almost an exponential way. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, that's our, uh, the, the market right now, part of why we raise this money is I, my, my, my experiences has been, it, it's, it's actually very rare that companies are constrained by capital. They're usually constrained by, you know, customer demand or they're constrained mm -hmm. by just internal processes, um, you know, market readiness, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we, you know, for the last six or eight months, we've actually, you know, being in the, in the rare circumstance where we actually are constrained by, by capital. Um, so, so this capital injection is going to let us sort of catch up to where we're at in terms of the demand that's coming at us. Um, you know, I talked before about how uh, even though we're in 60 countries with Scout, we've really focused in North America with Traffic Link. And that's not because the traffic is, you know, only bad in North America. It's bad in all sorts of places. It's more just that we don't have the the capacity to keep up with the demand that's that's coming at us. Um, right. You know, I think the, the the I often use the analogy of a of a smartphone when I talk about what we do at the intersection. Um, so before the smartphone, if you can rem remember back to those days, uh, you'd buy a phone, 
but you'd also buy a, a Garmin GPS unit and you'd buy a flashlight and a calculator, maybe like a portable DVD player. Right. And depending on what you wanted to do, you'd reach into your, your bag of hardware and you'd pull out the right device and you'd, you know, you'd do math or you'd shine, shine light. Um, and, and then when the smartphone came along, one piece of hardware enabled by software could do all those different things. Right. And so our, our market is very much still in the pre-smartphone um, age where every function, every feature function you want to add to an intersection is a new device, new piece of hardware, new capital expense, new installation. You know, you got to roll a bucket truck out there to, to put it up. Um, and so we're, what we're doing is bringing a smartphone mentality to the intersection where, you know, one piece of hardware enabled by software can do lots of different things. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I think what we're finding is that once customers, it takes time to kind of wrap your head around that as a, as a customer, because you've been, you know, do, operating a certain way for 25 years. But once you wrap your head around the new paradigm in the same way that, you know, after you bought your first smartphone, you didn't go back out and debate whether you should buy a flip phone again, you stuck, right. to, stuck with smartphones. Um, I think what we're seeing with customers is that as they, as they get organizationally over that sort of par- paradigm shift, um, then they're all in and they want to deploy it uh, citywide. Like we have nearly ubiquitous coverage now in, in the city of Detroit. Uh, the region of Waterloo just went ahead with a large procurement where we're going to have about two-thirds of the intersections in the region uh, by the end of next year or the end of this, this year now. Um, so it's, you know, it's starting to really accelerate and uh, we're, we're pretty excited to be ahead of the, ahead of the market. Yeah. So this investment, which is, I guess, led mostly by Telus, uh, yep. the, and they're they're going to hook up with you guys in terms of the mobility uh, aspect of their their product. Is is that going to be helpful to uh, Myovision to have this kind of partnership? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's sort of two aspects of um, two aspects of the the partnership with uh, with Telus. So in the near term. Um, you know, we've, we, we have a roaming relationship with them. So they provide Canada. They've, they've always provided Canada for us, but they, we now also have global roaming capability. So that makes it easier for me to go into different countries because I have one, one relationship now that can sort of have me on any network and in, in globally, which Great. is fantastic. Um, we're also um, do, doing some two-way data exchange. We have some interesting data that they want to use, but they also have really interesting data in the ABL space uh, mm-hmm. and some other areas that we're going to be able to leverage. So, the, so that's the sort of near term is, is, is access to their network, access to some of their data. Um, the long-term strategy with them is um, one of the things that has always bothered MyVision is that if we, let's say we went out and we, you know, we fixed, fixed traffic. So we invented a product that could make congestion uh, better, could improve safety um, in, in a really meaningful way, you know, uh, in a, in a, in a city. And we knew that if we deployed that globally, we could have massive impact on the mobility space. Um, even if we did that, the way that the refresh rates work for infrastructure, it would take 20 years for the impact of that to actually be felt at scale globally. Wow. And, and this has always bothered, bothered us. Um, you know, I'm not known for being patient and it just seems like it, it, we, we solved the problem. Why do we have to wait 20 years to have it, have it be implemented? So right. we've thought a lot about, um, about that problem and, and on, on the, the things we can control, you know, there's, there's an architecture that makes up an intersection that was created 30, 40 years ago. Um, that's still being installed today. It's analog serial, you know, large metal boxes filled with air. Um, so we think there's an opportunity to really reduce the capital cost of those. Uh, we think there's opportunities to reduce the, the, the operating costs, like the electricity consumption, how much manual effort goes into updating the signal timings. Um, right. And we think that when you combine all that, you can reduce the total cost of ownership of an intersection by maybe 70%. Um, the problem is 70% is a lot, but it's not 
the kind of order of magnitude that would take you from a 20 year refresh cycle to consumer electronics, which is maybe three years, right? You need a, a factor of seven improvement to keep up with the, the rate of technological improvement if you want to have that reflected in the mobility um, experience the drivers have, right? So, right. so we've been racking our brains for the last couple of years trying to figure out how do we, we, we got part, part way there with just being, you know, innovative and, and bringing new ideas to the architecture of an intersection. How do we get the rest of the way? And um, the more we hung out with the, with, with TELUS and with the telco world, we started to understand that they have a problem that they call 5G, which right. is 5G, unlike 4G and 3G, relies on what are called microcells. So you need a lot more towers than you did with 4G, where you could just put a tower up, broadcast out, uh, and you could build, build a network. With 5G, you need lots of little cells all through a city to, to provide the, the high-density network. Right. Um, and so the question is, where do you put them? If you put them on private uh, property, well, then you need to do a lot of deals with a lot of landlords in order to, to get your network up and running. Yep. Uh, or you put them on public property, which means you have to navigate the government uh, structures and bureaucracies, uh, you know, practices of fair, fairness in order to get your infrastructure onto their, their poles or their, or their, uh, their infrastructure. And, and so the, so there, so 5G, as it turns out, the, is the business model of 5G is actually really hard to, to, to implement. And so our thought was, well, what if we could turn an intersection into a 5G base station? Um, and now all of a sudden you can show up to the city and you can say, not only can I help you fix traffic, which is what you care about, but I can also help you get these, these 5G networks deployed um, wow. And by combining the cost structures and the physical location of the of the base stations, um, it allows us to get that get that refresh rate down to that three year uh, time scale, so that so that mobility can keep up with, with different technology. So that's that's the sort of uh, the hail mary um, yeah. bet that we're making with uh, with these folks as well. But you know that is uh, Curtis. That's just brilliant. Um, that that to me, looks like it's going to be this huge win-win-win uh, situation, and you're going to be so well-positioned uh, to be in that group uh, on the winning side. So good, fabulous thinking, uh, good anticipation. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, so, Curtis, just on the, on the personal side here, you mentioned that you're not known for being uh, patient. <laughs> I, I was chatting to someone yesterday and uh, they said, Curtis, he's so determined, bordering on stubborn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's kind of a strength, don't you? Uh, I, I mean, every strength is a shadow side, so you, you gotta you gotta know when to um, mm -hmm. uh, to back off. But I'll give you my take on it. I think most people assume that the world they see around them was always the way that they see it huh. right so so some might call me stubborn but i think a different way of looking at it is the world is stubborn ah. like the world doesn't want to change and even when there's a better way a faster way a cheaper way a safer way a more efficient way um the world resists the change because the world likes things the way that they've always been status and quo. so my, my job, and I think this is true of, of all entrepreneurs trying to build a business, is that you have to stand in the truth that that your way is right, even in the face of overwhelming evidence against you, uh, <laughs> yeah. or in the face of you know all of the market signaling that it's it's not gonna it's not gonna bend. You have to stand in the truth long enough 
mm-hmm. that the world can sort of bend to your your new way of thinking about it. Um, and I think that comes across sometimes as being stubborn, but <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that's how I think that's how change um, change happens. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a great quote that I'm sure I'm going to butcher, but it essentially the the punchline of it is essentially that um, it takes the unreasonable man to create change. And yes. um, I think I think that's sort of the lot of an entrepreneur is you gotta you gotta be if if you bend to the will of the world, then you won't innovate. And right. but if you stand stand there long enough and force the world to bend to your your will, then you will. Uh, you're not always right. So yeah. like that's what I've maybe 15 years of wisdom has sometimes taught me that there there often comes there eventually comes a time where you have to just accept that either you're wrong or the world's not ready to bend. But uh, but yeah, that's that's yeah. my 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 take on my stubbornness. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm that's sure my great. I'm sure my wife would feel differently. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, she isn't the one who said that. <laughs> well, that that's that's incredible uh, insight into what makes disruption uh, actually happen. Is that is that willpower combined with the vision and the stick to it stick of let's make this happen. And unless somebody has that, they're not going to innovate, as you say. One of my, um, I noticed you have uh, Steve Jobs on the wall behind you. Yes. Um, one of my, um, one of my biggest inspirations is uh, Elon Musk. And yes. one of my favorite uh, sort of speeches or, or uh, talks that, that he ever gave, he talks about there's, there's three ways to design. You can design by convention, you can design by analogy, or you can design from first principles. Hmm. And and essentially, the point was most people design from convention. It's, it's always been done this way, so we should do it this way. Right. They design by analogy. Well, something was like this, therefore, it, the same will be true in, in, in my context, and I'll do it the same way. Or they design by first principles, which is you really go down to the core of, like, what are you trying to accomplish here? And, and I find, um, you know, to the point about stubbornness, if you, if you design from first principles, which is kind of his point is you should always try to design from first principles. Uh-huh. If you design from first principles, the conclusions you come to sometimes are radical. Right, they're they're not conventional, um, and they don't have an analogy, but but they're they're also grounded in the most fundamental truth, right? Uh-huh. And and then so a lot of times you're once you've kind of got to the point where you don't even necessarily know how you're going to do it, whether it breaks the laws of physics, whether it's economically feasible. All you know is that from first principles, if you if you can implement it this way, it's going to lead to the successful outcome that you want. Um, so I, I try to I try to stay sort of grounded in that. Elon Musk wisdom. Yeah, uh, I'm with you there. That guy is uh, that guy's a hero, and uh, if somebody's going to change the world, it is going to take that sort of approach. Uh, so, yeah, good on him. And you know, behind me there is is Steve, and uh, then a picture of Waz as well. And uh, you know, what Wozniak to me um, is the real brilliant innovator because of what he could do with the technology and the humanness of the Apple technology as opposed to, you know, their competitors at the time. Um, yep. they, they, they not only thought differently, they did differently. Yep. And that's got to be done or things are not going to happen uh, yep. with any degree of extra. That everything's got to be reinvented so that there's an extra involved that's meaningful. Not just, an, you know, an, another flavor, but uh, 
something that is going to main, mean something and be very beneficial uh, to the customer, whoever that may be. Yep. Okay, great. So I guess it was easy getting MyoVision started, was it, back in 2004 or five? Uh, you, you didn't have, you haven't had any struggles uh, coming out of, uh, you're an engineer coming out of Waterloo. Everything was pretty easy, was it? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Piece of cake. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I always say that it took me the first couple of years of uh, doing MyoVision to cure, cure myself of my engineering degree. Um, <laughs> I mean, Good I think in, in, um, I mean, Waterloo engineering is amazing. It was a great experience set, set a foundation. Um, and I think you come out of that program, at least the time that I graduated, you came out of that program thinking that the, the building great technology, you know, great user experiences, that that was the hard part. That was the, if you could do that, then the rest of it would sort of take care of itself. And, you know, I remember my, one of my very first sales calls, I, I phoned, um, a guy in Toronto and I, I started pitching uh, pitching our product and I started talking about how it had a SQL database in the back end which meant it could you know was fast it could retrieve his traffic data records you know great yeah. and a lot of technical jargon and he, he cut me off and he's like listen I don't have a clue what you're saying uh, but you sound really passionate about it so why don't you phone me back when you figure out how to talk to guys like me and I'm happy to take your call <laughs> and uh, it was a really um, really impactful conversation because uh, mm -hmm. it made me really step back and think about like I gotta I gotta put this in the context of of my customer what they care right. about um, you know how does it help them you know achieve their goals yeah. uh, and and sort of I think that was a, a light bulb moment and and um, and there's been lots of those along the way you know every um, every new scale in a company creates new new challenges things you were doing last week that worked now all of a sudden stop working um, you know, I guess one for us has probably been how do you scale culture? Like how do you, you know, when you're 12 people, Huge. culture is the, the average personality in the room. Um, mm -hmm. uh, when you're 200 people, you have to be a lot more intentional and, and deliberate and systematic about it. Um, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, every, every day is a new challenge. It's one of the things I love about my job is that I, I come in and, uh, in the morning and um, get to work on, you know, everything ranging from, organizational dynamics to marketing to technology to finance mm -hmm. um and yeah. uh yeah it's a, it's a every day is a new day i always say i never stop being a co-op student <laughs> yeah but you're getting your assignments now from you yeah. Uh, yeah or my customers or my employees yes. or my yeah um yeah i mean we try to i mean one of the things about our culture is we try to to, to say it's flat is is it would not be an accurate metaphor but we try to we try to organize around the objective right trying to organize around the goal so who's who's the best person to lead in that moment um right. and build build teams dynamically to achieve those those outcomes and so sometimes that means i get to get to lead but other times i'm a contributor on a team and um yeah. and i get to follow right and uh, yeah. I, I think that's really like one of the things that we've we've tried really hard to keep as we've grown and you know, every, every scale, you have to reinvent how you do it, but we've tried to keep this sort of, um, you know, cell, cellular approach to, uh, to, to building the organization as much as we can as we've grown. Yeah. I think that's, that's a tremendous intention. And from what I hear, you guys are actually behaving that way. Uh, and that's going to be one of the keys to, uh, any organization success in the future, especially now when talent is looking for that kind of organization. I don't think talent is looking for the pyramid so much, you know, the organizational chart uh, that looks like a pyramid 
they bury people in those things. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the new fabulous talent wants to know that, you know, they're, they're contributing, they're working with other really smart people and no one's getting too siloed yep. in uh, departments, et cetera. So that's, yep. that's going to be great for, uh, for my vision and your and your team, so, I think a lot of I think a lot of companies organize around um, uh, efficiency and or control, and and I think that's sort of the traditional traditional mm-hmm. organizational model. Um, yep. We try to we try to organize around um, around velocity and innovation, and Great. which is which sometimes feels like you're not you know you're not always in control. Things are not right. always as efficient as they could be. Yeah. Um, but I think in this world where, you know, Moore's law is driving exponential improvements and all sorts of things, um, you know, technologically, technologically and, and in business models, you have to go fast in order to compete. Uh, right. so yeah, yeah. cultures, I think are number one competitive advantage. Yeah, there you go. Um, tell me a little bit, if you can, about, uh, catalyst capital. This is something that, uh, you've just recently set up. Yep. Uh, and I think it's, is it Amy French that's... Uh, Am- yeah, Amber French. Amber, sorry, sorry yep. Amber French. And she's working with you on that. Why was this started and, and what are you going to do with it? <laughs> yeah, so all the all the while that I was, you know, coming up in the early the early days of my vision, I was mentored. I mean, I still do lots of uh, mentoring, but mentored by people who always used to talk about um, serial, serial entrepreneurship, right? So this mm-hmm. was the idea that you could you'd build one and you could exit it and then, you take a break and you build another one and, and on and on. And uh, it was always quite, um, I was always quite interested in this idea of serial entrepreneurship. But what I, what I found was that, you know, m- m- I'm not in any hurry to not be doing my vision. Like there's, there's till still like some really exciting growth um, opportunities ahead of us. So rather than giving up on the idea that you get to do multiple things, I said, well, why don't I just be a parallel entrepreneur? That seems like a, uh, seems like an idea. So things yeah. like catalyst 137 was a, was a foray into, into real estate, I figured if I was only ever going to do one, you might as well take a half a million square feet because it's you know, <laughs> do something yes. do something fun with it. Um, and and I have a few other. Uh, I have a small software company that I that I helped uh, start uh, called mm-hmm. Meadow. Um, and so, but what I was finding was that well, you know, you have I had um, I had figured out how to spend a couple hours a week uh, taking a vision, building a team around it, and sort of you know getting keeping being stubborn keeping them in the moment keeping them in the, in the vision focused on it um raising capital for those ideas takes time uh-huh. and uh so i either had to slow down on the parallel entrepreneurship front or i had to figure out how to solve the capital raising part of it and right. so i figured well why not just build another business that focuses on raising capital and yeah. uh and it can it can it can help the projects that, that i have around me but it can also maybe help fill a hole in the community more generally um, so Amber and I uh, started Catalyst Capital just just under a year ago. It was March of last year. Um, we've done uh, two different deals. Uh, so we've done uh, we, we called SPV special purpose vehicles. So basically project based financing. So we find something that's interesting and we raise capital around it. Um, right. So one of the ones that construction is starting shortly and will be open by July is called Catalyst Commons. So this is like a be a 60,000 square foot uh, co-working space uh, in Catalyst 137. So focused uh-huh. on that time between you you graduate from the incubators, you're out of the accelerator center, out of Communitech. Where do you go now? Um, instead of going to sign a five-year lease and having to move in the year like like I did, and like most of my con- <laughs> contemporaries did, right. the idea is let's let's build that sort of um, you know 
and you got out of your parents' house, but now you, you get to go to university dorm for a couple of years before you get a, right. a mortgage and all that good stuff. Yep. Um, so, so, but yeah, that's, that's Catalyst Capital is, is just sort of uh, allows me to flex some of my creativity that I have outside of my vision. And, and then over time, we're going to try to stand up a, a proper fund and help fill the, the hole in the community. Just, just, just like the garage guys did years ago. Proved, yeah. Proved from, could do it. So, yeah. Yeah. The guys from, um, Vidyard and, uh, Vidyard and Bufferbox. Yeah. yeah. Mike yeah. Uh, McCauley. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's, it, that in itself is a great idea. And what you are doing now with, uh, capital, uh, Catalyst Capital and Catalyst 137, I mean, is, is really commendable. I, I was over, well, you and I bumped into each other about two weeks ago. Um, and I was lost in there looking for one particular office, but it was great because the vibe, the energy, uh, is just so positive. Uh, and you know, I, I've worked at, at Communitech as an entrepreneur in residence and the accelerator center. Um, you guys have got something going on there that, uh, is coming up through the floor and it, and it is that, uh, that positive energy and frankly, uh, a collective uh, culture. So congratulations. Um, I'm really excited for you. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that that was, I'm glad, glad to hear you say that. that. That was the vision of this place was <clears throat> let's let's build a place where um, companies of different sizes and shapes, we have big public companies and we have small startups can, can come and be, but also where the community can come in. Like we built a, there's a, a 6,500 square foot um, event space right in the front yes. lobby when you come in and we do mm-hmm. probably two or three events a week in there. Uh, and some of them are tech events, but like some of them are, you know, uh, Canadian Mental Health did an event here. Yep. We've had the hospital AGMs been been here. There's been art shows here. So it try I try to bring the community uh, and some of the like culture aspects of the community in and collide them with tech. Um, yes. You know, there's a full service restaurant, so people can come bring their families and have uh, have dinner. And, and and yeah, it's been it's been really interesting to sort of see it. Um, it's amazing when you just give space away for free that it uh, it has an effect of drawing in um all the right kinds of right kinds of things so i re- i remember um not so long ago sitting uh sitting there listening to um Chantel Kraviazic and Rain Maida yes. uh play their duets and thinking this is bizarre these are like these are my childhood musical uh yeah. heroes sitting in a sitting in a building you know playing in, in exactly the way we kind of envisioned that it could could happen so it's wow. been pretty exciting to see this place turn from a warehouse into what it became <laughs> And it was aware that had to be uh, more work than you had even anticipated. That place well, was I, a dump. Yeah, I mean, uh, someone, someone, someone who I consider um, a mentor once told me once told me that uh, ignorance was an entrepreneur's best asset. Uh, <laughs> and I think, um, you know, I'd never even finished a basement when when we took this on. Uh, yeah. So, didn't really know sort of what. I think if I had known what, what it was going to be involved in, uh, would have given me second second pause. Yeah. But I figured, like, how hard can how hard can it be? Like, it's yeah. Uh, you know, this is really where I think the the DNA of an entrepreneur comes out, and, and maybe it has to do with ignorance, and maybe it has to do with, um, hey, let's give it a try. Yeah. And, What's the worst that can happen? What's the my worst my, that can my happen? big thing too is like on and Catalyst One Thirty Seven is a great example of this. Is like you should as an entrepreneur, you should always try to be the dumbest person on your team. Yes. Um, and yeah. and I think like with with uh, 
with with Catalyst, I was really fortunate to bring in partners who had done yep. this before and who knew mm-hmm. kind of what they were getting themselves into. Um, and that that made it all that made the vision possible to to yep. manifest. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I I really try to take that. Like I I always say I'm good at building building brand visions and, and filling bank accounts up. And, and then beyond that, I got to let other people step in and, and make it real. Wow. Well, Curtis, you're, you're a modern day hero to me and I'm sure to uh, a lot of other people who share that entrepreneurial uh, DNA that, that you're making it happen and that's the way it should be. And you, I think, I know, I have total confidence that you're going to continue uh, to create the things that success looks like. Uh, so there's, there's no stopping Curtis McBride. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're, you're only as good as your last one. So hopefully well, that continues to be true. <laughs> well, well, that is true too. <laughs> when well, my, Elon Musk's first failure, people will say, see, I told you he was a crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, um, I mean, I'm, I'm really fortunate to be in this community. Like we have a, there's a real culture yes. that allows people who are a little bit crazy to, to take chances. Yep. And, uh, that's what the community has been built on. So. So Waterloo if, I, if, I, if I'm doing well, it's because I'm standing on the shoulder of the giants that came before me. There you go. Curtis, thanks very much for spending some time with us today. This is Curtis uh, McBride. He is the co-founder and CEO of Myovision, which is based here in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, but also they have an office in Cologne, Germany. They are expanding with purpose, and that's always key uh, to any sustained success is they're doing it for the right reasons. Uh, and I, I will personally uh, guarantee to everyone listening that uh, Myovision in 10 years will be still the leader, uh, not only in their category, but they'll be well-respected and well-regarded as a culture and as an organization. So Curtis, thank you. Keep being, uh, keep being Curtis and keep doing great things. And uh, thanks for joining us here on AQ's Blog and Grill. Thank you. AQ's Blog and Grill.